Good morning, church. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church. It's so good to have you here this bright, sunny Sunday morning. I think most of our Sunday mornings are bright and sunny, amen, here in Arizona. And I'm excited to get into the nitty-gritty of our study here in the book of Ephesians. Last week, we gave the background of the start of the church at Ephesus. If you missed that service or you missed that message, please make sure you go to our YouTube channel and catch that online. And today, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of the text, and we're going to start in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to encourage you to be a part of each of these messages as we have an opportunity uh, throughout these summer months to, to go verse by verse, line upon line through the book of Ephesians. And almost every summer that I've been here at Desert Hills, we've gone through sequentially a book of the Bible, and we do that most of the time in the summer. And then oftentimes uh, the rest of the year we'll take a topic and then we'll get message and exposit a passage on that topic, not a topical message, but an expository message dealing with love or family or marriage or stewardship or some of the things that we commonly deal with in our, our lives as Christians and in our church here at Desert Hills. But I'm excited to get into this this morning. The title of the message is The Blessings of Christianity. The blessings of Christianity. Now, the moment someone becomes a Christian, they are given more than they can ever imagine. Here's how the Gospel of John records it. John chapter 10 and verse 28. Jesus said, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Did you hear that? How long is eternal? Forever. Eternal's not till the next time you sin. How long is eternal? It is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And Jesus said, if you are a part of my family, if you are in my hand, no one can pluck you out of my hand. And then in verse 29, Jesus said, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. What a promise. Now, not only does God give us eternal life, but God gives us as believers the resources to understand and to navigate life. Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 3. It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and to godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue. Literally, God has given us his word, which is full of exceeding great and precious promises that enable us to escape the corruption of the world and directs us to live like Jesus as fathers, as mothers, as husbands, as wives, as children, as students, as employers and employees. And, and here's what it goes on to say in verse 4. It says, whereby are given unto us these promises that by these you might be made partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, every Christian ought to thank God for the blessings that they have. They may not realize them. They may not fully and totally understand them, but every Christian here this morning ought to thank God for the blessing even of their Christianity. The fact that Jesus pulled you out of the pit and put you on the rock and established your goings and put a new song in your mouth, even praise unto our God. The Bible says many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. Every one of us has so much to be thankful for. Now, Paul, in writing this epistle, is wanting the church to understand these blessings because he is writing to the Ephesians while he is in prison. 
Now, he went on to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, as we talked about last week. And while he was there, he ended up getting imprisoned, and everyone was setting him up to kill him. He appealed to Caesar, a higher authority. So now as he sits in a prison cell, instead of wallowing in his misery or his pain, he ministers. In fact, he ministers, the Bible tells us in the book of Philippians, by witnessing. Here's what it says. I would that you understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in the palace in all other places. In other words, because Paul ended up in prison, he had an opportunity to witness to those that were in the palace of Caesar. Because he was in bonds, the gospel was able to be furthered. And then it goes on to say, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Because of his uh, imprisonment, other disciples were bold, and they did not hold back, and they just went on to preach the gospel regardless of the cost. Now, he ministers also, Paul, by teaching and writing, and that's how we get the prison epistles of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. And he begins his letter to the Ephesian Christians with a celebration of blessings. Notice, first of all, it's a personal celebration. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's personal celebration comes back to the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, this was not something that was Paul's original intent. Paul was a tent maker by trade. Paul was a learned theologian. Paul schooled at the feet of one by the name of Gamaliel. Paul was one of the most highly learned people of his day. He was a cosmopolitan man. He intersected in cultures. He intersected amongst people groups. He intersected in business. He was a man's man. He was a man that uh, uh, knew a lot of things. But Paul's intent was never to be an apostle. But this was something that Jesus did when he met Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. In fact, Jesus called out to Paul as he was on his high horse, and he knocked him off his horse, and he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, I've been trying to get your attention. I've been prodding at your heart. I've been trying to convict your soul. I've been trying to open your eyes, and you haven't? Listen, your, your attention hasn't been waned at all. And here I am, I have to knock you off your horse so that you understand that I am Messiah and Lord. And Paul ended up becoming a Christian. The most vehement persecutor of Christians became the most zealous propagator of Christianity. The Jews at Damascus, where he was on his way, were so shocked witnessing Paul's conversion, they chalked it up to a miracle of God. Here's what Acts 9 accounts. It says, but Saul increased more in strength and in wisdom and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. In other words, they looked at Paul and said, man, this is nothing more than a miracle. This guy has changed so much. This must be an act of God. Now, we understand that Paul's apostolic authority was not self-generated. He was called to be an apostle, the Bible says, a sent one by the will of God. 
God had given Paul a special task, and that was to preach the gospel amongst the Jews and the Gentiles to take the gospel to the world. It's interesting to note that the name Saul, as Paul was first called, was derived from Israel's first king, King Saul, who stood head and shoulders above everyone else in his kingdom. And although Paul here would not have imagined himself as physically taller than everyone before his conversion, he thought himself to be morally and intellectually and spiritually, spiritually taller than everyone before his conversion. But now after coming to know Jesus more intimately, he takes the name Paul instead of his birth name, Saul. And Paul means, get this, it means small. Small. Now, Paul's smallness became the medium for God's greatness. Paul's puniness became the channel for God's power. So Paul celebrates personally, and it's as if he's saying, Hey, guys, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Woo! I'm in prison. I'm in a cell. I'm racked up right now, chained to a Roman soldier, but I want you to understand something. I'm an apostle by the will of God. And then he celebrates with the church positionally. Notice what it says, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, the people of Israel and sometimes even angels were given the honored title of saints. Therefore, as one theologian explains, by using the same designation, saints, the author of Ephesians bestowed upon all his pagan-born hearers a formerly privileged reserve for the nation of Israel, for special, especially priestly servants of God, or for angels. Think about that. Applying the privileged word saints to pagan Greeks was mind-boggling to those with the Jewish background. Hebrew detractors considered it rape of their sacred vocabulary. But from the Christian perspective, it was a fitting word to celebrate the miracle of God's grace in each of the saved one's lives. Now, the word saints means holy, consecrated ones, saved ones. Now, the word was descriptive of what happened inside of each of these Ephesians that were saved. They were set apart. They were consecrated to God in salvation. They were consecrated ones living in the shadow of immense spiritual darkness in the city of Ephesus. But the Bible also describes them as faithful. Faithful to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, these Ephesian Christians were faithfully living out their consecration. Jesus had truly done something in them, and in faithfulness of growth, that faithfulness was pouring out. Now, notice the celebratory tone of Paul's greeting explaining how the gospel works. He says, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes first. Grace comes first, and as it fills our life through the Holy Spirit, it then brings shalom. Peace, reconciliation, and wholeness. And as we think about that, what a picture of the gospel. We receive God's unmerited favor through grace. We receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Him as the way, the truth, and the life. And then what the gospel does, because we receive grace, the Holy Spirit continues to change us as a child of God's grace. And then we have shalom, wholeness, and completeness in our soul. As Paul moves on to more substance in the text, he speaks of the author of our blessings. 
Now notice what it goes on to say in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, the concept of God being known as Father is not really known. In the Old Testament, God is known as El, God. He's known as El Elyon, God Almighty. He's known as El Roy, the strong one who sees. He's known as El Shaddai, the almighty, almighty creator God. He's known as Elohim, the, uh, the one uh, who is in all, creating all, the plural form of God. He's known as uh, Yahweh or uh, uh, Adonai or Jehovah Shammah or Jehovah Sidkenu. It's not until Jesus that we hear God referred to as Father in a familial and endearing way. In fact, Jesus used that, that word, Father, over 60 times in the New Testament, referring to God. Matthew chapter 5, we see it first. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. He continues on multiple times, including Matthew chapter 6. But with thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou shalt shut thy door, pray to the Father which seeth in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Jesus wanted man to truly understand that God was not in heaven, distant, uncaring, and unmoving. He was a father, and just as and more so than their earthly fathers, God wanted to take care of them, aid them, identify with them, and help them. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Now, every one of us want better for our children. Every single one of us. There's not a single one of us that say, you know what? I had it rough as a child, and I want my child to have it rougher. I don't know that there's a single one of us that would honestly say that. In fact, I remember my dad. My dad always wanted better for me. I, he taught me to read, I think, probably around three years of age or so. I remember the books, uh, See Spot Run, See Jane Run, you know, all those books. And I remember those, uh, those books. And I started reading at an early age. And I remember when I was five or six years of age, he bought me these uh, um, childcraft encyclopedia books, and I just started reading through those. And then he bought me maybe seven or eight years of age. He brought, bought me a set of world book encyclopedias, and I was that kid that would just sit there, and a whole new world was opened up to me as I read and got information reading the encyclopedia. It was, forget Saturday morning cartoons, give me world book. I was that guy, all right? I got an inhaler here somewhere. I'm not sure I got one somewhere, but I was that guy. But when I remember when I told my dad that I knew that God was leading me to go to Christian ministry, it almost broke his heart. He was not in the same place where I was at spiritually, and all he ever wanted me to do was to be a doctor. He wanted me to have it better than him. He wanted me to use my mind and abilities that God had given me to make more and struggle less than he did. He's obviously in a different place now, but we always want it better for our children. And think about this. Don't you think God wants better for you than you want better for you? 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, the Bible says, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? All those who possess salvation have God as their personal heavenly Father. And yes, God is still the Almighty One. And yes, He is still the Lord, our healer, the Jehovah Rapha. And yes, He's still the Lord, our banner, Jehovah Shammah. And yes, He's still Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees, the God who sees before and the God who sees to it. And yes, He's the same eternally self-existent God mentioned in the Old Testament, the author of all things and beginner of all things. And He's the author of all blessings. And here's the thing, you need to understand, Christian, that He is your Father as well. We see thirdly, not only the author of our blessings, we see the area of our blessings. Notice what the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now notice Paul mentions first the blessings that God has bestowed upon us are spiritual. They're spiritual. Not necessarily emotional, although understanding our spiritual position will affect our emotions. Not necessarily physical blessings, but what we know that uh, uh, spiritual blessings also comes in the way of physical blessings, not necessarily intellectual blessings, although our understanding of our spiritual position will affect our intellect. Now, these spiritual blessings directly affect the part of us that will never die, our soul, the who we really are, our soul. Now, Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand that being in Christ, having placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, they have been elevated, the Bible says, to heavenly places. Now, literally, that is, the certainty of their salvation is so secure because they are in Christ that they occupy a place where Christ is now enthroned, seated right now at the Father's own right hand who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, the Bible says, in heavenly places in Christ. Now, Paul went on to explain this later in Ephesians chapter 1, just a few verses later, verse 20. The Bible says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Later in chapter 2, Paul speaks of us being united to Jesus through faith and seated right now in these heavenly places because we are in Christ and our salvation is so secure that our seat is already there. Notice what Ephesians 2 says, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, in other words, in layman's terms... While we believers are temporarily here on earth, because of our spiritual position, we have the blessing of understanding that we have a seat reserved for us in heaven when we die. I want to sing a song, but my brother-in-law is here this morning, so I'm not going to sing it. He doesn't like when I sing songs. So uh, 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 something about a ticket to ride, never mind. But uh, uh, anyways, that's the Beatles, right? We got a seat there already, folks. We don't need a QR code. We don't need a ticket necessarily. We don't need another reservation if we got one. We don't need to go clamor for a seat. If we're saved, if we're in Christ, we're seated right now in heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus. Now, let's ask you a question, though. Do you have your reservation? Are you in Christ, or is Christ in you? We see not only the author of our blessings, the area of our blessings, we see, fourthly, the opportunities of our blessings. Notice we have been chosen. The Bible says, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a lot more I could say about this, and some of you are going to think I'm copying out about this, but I'm going to give you the basics here, so understand. Now, we need to understand that God is infinite, and every one of us are finite. God is infinite, we are finite. God transcends time and dwells literally outside of it. Things that have happened 6,000 years ago uh, to God are the same as if they have happened today because God is eternal. He is forever in both directions. Now, God chose us before man was created and had any need of redemption. Think about that. And if we truly understand this, we get the idea that salvation is truly free, without merit, and undeserved, for it is impossible for any man to earn, to merit, or deserve salvation because God made it possible before even man was formed. Think about that. God made it possible before we were even here. God chose to send Jesus to die for the sins of man before man even had a need. And here's what Revelation tells us, chapter 13, that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And all those who choose Jesus are the chosen, and we must understand that Jesus' payment was given for all, but not all will choose, if you will. Secondly, not only are we chosen, but we're changed. We're changed. Notice what it says. It says that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, all those who are chosen because they chose Christ by faith are positionally holy and without blame. When God looks at His children, He no longer sees our sins and our transgressions. He sees us as sons and daughters who are holy and without blame. Here's how Paul writes to the Romans about their unique position in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. And then it goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, as he's writing to help these believers understand that there's nothing that could change their position, there's nothing that could make them uh, uh, outside of holiness or with blame. He says this, he says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. God is the one that makes us righteous. God is the one that positionally makes us right. And then he goes on to say, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again and is even at the right hand of God, whoever maketh intercession for us. So God saves us. He positionally sanctifies us. And he sees no more blemish in us. He changes us. He no longer sees us as sinners deserving of hell. Those that are Christians, he sees us as holy and without blame, as recipients of his love. And not only does God change us, we see another opportunity of the blessings of Christianity. We see that he makes us his children. 
Notice what the Bible says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of the children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now those who are chosen, who chose Jesus, are predestined to be adopted into the family because of Jesus. Now, a child adopted into a family during this time had all the rights and privileges of children literally born into these families. And Paul is writing to help believers once again understand the special and unique relationships that believers have with God as their father. If you've never read the book, J.I. Packer has a book called Knowing God. I've probably read it seven or eight times uh, in my lifetime, seven or eight times, and I could probably read it another seven or eight. There's another book that uh, probably is a, a little bit more in-depth. Charnock has a book, The Existence and App Attributes of God, but it's about 800 pages, and uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God is about 220 pages, so probably 220 pages is a little bit more that people can bite off. But here's what J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook in life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And yes, every one of you that claim to be believers need to understand that God is your father. Maybe you didn't grow up with a father who loved you and nurtured you and helped you and disciplined you and discipled you. Or maybe your father was not a good example. And maybe when I say that God is your father, you automatically think negative thoughts because you automatically think of the negative influence maybe that your father had on your life. Well, let me explain something. No matter what you think of your father, no matter what you think of uh, somebody that supplemented that role in your life, I want you to understand as the song goes, God is a good, good father. Amen. And here's what the Bible says about that in Romans chapter 8. It says... For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father. And then it says this, the Holy Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit, little s. The Holy Spirit, capital S, bears witness to our spirit, little s, that we are the children of God. So here's what our Abba Father does for us. We don't have to fear if we're truly in Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit, literally to our soul. And the Holy Spirit testifies this, yes, child. Yes, it's going to be okay, son. Yes, I'm going to see you through this, young lady. Yes, I am your father. Nothing to worry about here. We see one last thing this morning as we look at the blessings of our Christianity. We see the impotence of our blessings. Notice what it says in verse 6. To the praise of the glory 
of His grace. I love that. We are chosen, we are changed, and we're given a place as God's child because God chose to extend His grace, His chattis, the Greek word, His love to us. Now think about this. Do you really understand the blessing of knowing that God loves you? The God who created all things that are, the God who can do anything and knows everything about you. He chose to extend his immense love and grace towards you and to be one of his children. Now, I know there are those here this morning who feel abandoned. I know there are those here this morning that feel unloved. I know there are those here this morning that feel like you're undeserving of anyone's love. But I want you to understand, I want you to know something. There's nothing you could do that could ever cause God to love you anymore. And there's nothing you could do that could ever cause God to love you any less. And when we understand the extension of God's grace because He's glorious, it'll boggle our mind that in spite of us, in spite of who we are with all of our faults, with all of our hang-ups, with all of our uh, ups and downs, with all of our fears and emotions, God still chooses to love us. And here's what the Bible says in Romans in chapter 8 and verse 3, from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, none of those things can separate us from the love, the grace of God. We're not only affirmed, but we're also accepted. Accepted. This is a position that you do not have to earn. This is a position that you are given the moment that you are saved. And the Bible says this. It says, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, one of the greatest needs that we have as human beings is to be accepted by others. That is why young people go through great lengths to be initiated into a gang. They want the acceptance of those peers. That is why frat boys and frat girls will do illogical and foolish things. They want to be accepted. That is why people will get into relationships that they're unsure of. They so desperately long for the acceptance of someone else. But understand this, because of what Jesus has done for us, God looks at each one of us that are His children with acceptance. He takes you as you are, His child. I have four children. They're wonderful, beautiful, just so full of potential. I love them. But as a dad, I'll be honest with you, they've not always done what I've wanted them to do. As a dad, I'll be honest with you, I've not always done what they've wanted me to do. But in spite of all of their faults, faults and ups and downs, in spite of all of the, the cadre of sometimes weirdness that I experience as a parent, that's my child. I don't approve of everything they do. 
I don't like everything they do. I don't want everything they do. But that's my child. And I've told every one of my girls this. I've said this many times. I want you to understand, girls. No matter what happens, no matter what you do, you're always going to be my child and I'm always going to love you. And how much so, so much more does God look at us and he says, no matter what you do, no matter where you are, no matter where you find yourself, if you're in Christ, you are accepted into my family. So this morning, as we think about the blessings of Christianity, I want you to understand, Christians, you are blessed more than you could ever imagine. The all-powerful, self-existent, true and living God, creator, Father, He secured salvation to the extent that we are seated in heavenly places right now. Our seat is set if we're in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are chosen, you are changed, you are holy and without blame before Him in love. You are God's child. In salvation, you are affirmed and accepted by the Father and no matter what you are going through, no matter what you may face as a believer in this world, I want you to never forget the blessings you have because of Jesus.